0: Hello and welcome back to the CRASH podcast, which is all about clinical radiology academics speaking honestly. I'm your host, Tom Termazine, consultant radiologist in Norwich and the Royal College of Radiologists 2020 Röntgen Professor. In this podcast series, we have been hearing from inspirational radiologists from across the UK who are in some way involved in academic radiology and research. And today we reach what many would consider the pinnacle of that career as we talk with three professors of radiology about, among other things, their life in academia, what they think needs to be done to drive forward imaging research in the UK, and how we can grow our academic leaders of the future. So I'm delighted to be joined this week by Amaka Othia, Chair of Paediatric Musculoskeletal Imaging at the University of Sheffield, an Honorary Consultant Paediatric Radiologist at the Sheffield Children's Hospital, Erica Denton, Consultant Radiologist and Medical Director at the Norfolk and Norwich University Hospital and Honorary Professor of Radiology at the University of East Anglia, and Fiona Gilbert, Professor and Head of Department of Radiology at the University of Cambridge, and Honorary Consultant Radiologist at Addenbrooke's Hospital, of course, also in Cambridge. So even though it's finally decided to get chilly outside, it's a very warm welcome to all of you. And thank you for joining us on the Crash podcast. Hello. Hello. Hi. Right. So we always uh, think it's a really good idea to get to know a little bit more about our guests from the outset. So, Fiona, why don't you lead us off and tell us a little bit more about yourself, um, your background and how you came to be where you are today?
1: Okay well thanks Tom, I'm a um, Glasgow graduate, I then went to Aberdeen and did radiology training up there and in fact became a professor there. I was got really lucky, I was involved in some research projects and they were um, looking for, they were, made a new department, a, a new chair um, in Aberdeen and so I was appointed there and kind of learned how to do research, surrounded myself with experts and because uh, I really knew very little as I, I look back and think, gosh, and then having spent a, a long time there and um, building up a, a department, we merged with the medical physics department, which was a superb department having, they were very involved in developing MRI. So then built up the department there and then got this amazing opportunity to to move to Cambridge and become head of department there. And so uh, how long have you been now in Cambridge? So I've been in Cambridge for nine years now, um, moved in 2011 and, and uh, took over from Adrian Dixon, who is sort of a stellar individual, super kind and considerate and, and really kind of helped me settle into the, the Cambridge way of doing things, which I have to say was quite different from, from the, yes. doing things from Scotland. <laughs>
0: Okay. well, all right. Well, that's a good point for us now to put something forward a little bit different to what you might have been expecting. Um, We come to that part of the podcast that uh, everyone maybe um, has hopefully been looking forward to. It's time for the crash test. I think our listeners should be familiar with the setup, but for the benefit of our guests, you'll be asked to select five numbers from the crash test grid and answer as quick fire as you can and hopefully as honestly as possible. And we've had the honesty bar set pretty high so far with talk of Mankini's monopoly cheating and uh, manipulating siblings' homework. So I'll be honest, there's quite a lot to live up to. And I'm also just gonna check that uh, you have all signed the collision damage waiver ensuring that my future prospects aren't damaged by this. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, paperwork seems in order. So Fiona, let's get the crash test grid up and running again. Here we go, you can see it's pretty high tech stuff. You like to choose the first number yeah okay 14. 14 okay what is your favorite ice cream flavor
1: uh, oh it has to be uh i haven't had it for so long the haggendass one the chocolate one with all the kind of lovely crunchy bits in it i forgot even forgot
0: what it's called just as well i'm not advertising it <laughs> yeah no, we tried to get free samples but they'd not been forthcoming okay yeah next one 13. Ah, yeah, no, my wife is going to groan at this one, um, but I really wanted to include it. <laughs> can you name a song by the band Talking Heads? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's why she said don't include it. Can anyone? I'm afraid not. No, no, Erica, you're not on, you have got one? No, nah, okay, never mind. Okay, can all right, you, well.
2: Can you name one?
0: Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. This must be the place, uh, Road to Nowhere, Drugs, uh, yeah, plenty, I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah. Um, right, yeah, let's get back to the business uh, Next one? okay seven what keeps you awake at night
1: oh gosh actually lots of things do so if i'm not delivering on a grant if that that'll keep me awake you know if things are going badly and we're not recruiting or i'm having problems within the team that'll that'll wake me up or things that will also worry me at night will be if things are are not gelling in the department you know if if there's people if there's infighting over whatever reason and i'm Kind of worrying about how I'm going to sort that out and settle people down and that that kind of thing. That that will keep me awake at night.
0: It's funny. Nighttime seems to be cursed as the spillover zone of all these issues that ferment during the day and it's very difficult to get rid of them. Okay. Well, they talk about the darkest hour, don't they? Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely, indeed. Would you like to choose the next number? Oh God, three. Okay, so this is Crash test favourite here. How many times did you fail your driving test?
1: I was going to say I didn't fail it but I did I failed at once, no I didn't yeah no I failed at once.
0: Once okay so we like to ask no, everyone. You
1: know what I'm getting mixed up with, I fa- I didn't fail my driving test but I did fail FRCR part one and the reason I failed <laughs> was because I nearly crashed the car on the way to that, well I it was probably because I didn't know enough but I was really spooked because I crashed the car and the way I was thinking was that my driving test it was that part one but that was definitely a failure.
0: Well, I thought you'd been bringing up the Compton effect and Compton scattering and your driving test and that's why you failed, because <laughs> that would lead to failure. Um, but, yeah, good. Well done. So we'd like to ask everyone this. We'd like to find out, we're going to see, we've got a record of how many times people have failed. Erica, would you like to tell us? So I
3: passed first time my driving test. Um, okay, I passed my FRCR part one first time too. <laughs> I failed my membership of the Royal College of Physicians, the written. Three, twice. Passed it third time. So I've got failures under my belt as well.
0: <laughs> so uh, Amaka, what about you?
3: Oh, uh, I'm
2: going to disgrace myself. I think I passed on the third go. Okay, third so two go. failures.
0: That's nowhere near the worst. Um, <laughs> the <laughs> winner remains Tim Bray from UCL. Good good for him. Well done him. What number is um, he on then? Uh, I think he failed uh, four times and Jamie Mackay was close second place having failed three times. So there we go and vast majority was zero. So uh, Fiona let's get back to it, one more. Um. Okay number um. 11. How many musical instruments can you play?
1: Uh, I'm not sure I can play any at the moment, I can play the recorder and I used to be able to play the oboe. Oh great, did you used to make your own reeds? I did actually, well you have to kind of shave them and
0: yeah. Yeah, yeah, apparently it's really, really finicky detail. That's, uh, well, good stuff, right. Okay, Fiona, thank you very much for doing the crash test. Now let's move on to our next guest, Erica. Could you now tell us a little bit about yourself, your background and how you came to be where you are today? Thank you, Tom.
3: So I did, went to medical school in London. I went to St. Thomas's. I was part of lots of other big organizations, which shows my age. Um, And I then did general medicine, Um, and my membership of the Royal College of Physicians, and then went into radiology at Thomas's in the old registrar system and became a senior registrar at Guy's Thomas's. And I guess that's where my interest in research really came about. I had a couple of babies as a trainee and happily spent my mat leaves on research projects, annotating images, and actually doing um, brain MR segmentation back in the day, Um, and discovered I really, really loved it and haven't ever quite stopped doing some research as a result of that. I got my first consultant job in London at King's and then I moved up to Norfolk with my then husband who couldn't get a London-based job back in 1999. So I've been up here for 21 years this year. Um, I was made an honorary professor at UEA uh, nine years ago in 2011, um, which was very special actually, really, really special. Um, and I've continued, despite being medical director for the last two and a half years, to do a bit of research, because I find it kind of it employs a different bit of my brain and a different way of thinking. And it, I also find it fantastically separate from quite a lot of the other things that I do. And I really love it. So I've kept a bit of a research portfolio, despite doing lots of other things as well.
0: So the use of different bits of the brain is definitely something our other guests have talked about, something that definitely I find rewarding. It's like doing a a crossword as compared to a Sudoku. I mean, uh, different things. I mean, uh, so yeah, very engaging. Let's see if you can use your most appropriate bit of your brain for this next part, which is of course the crash test. So would you like to choose your first number?
3: So it has to be number six, because I
0: have six children, that's another story, but it has to be number six. What did you get away with at school?
3: Smoking behind the bike sheds. Ooh.
0: Yeah, there we go. Next, quickly. Number ten. Mountains or beach?
3: I don't have the knees for mountains anymore, they're old and crumbly, Um, so probably beach.
0: Okay, and of course that puts you near one of your interests, doesn't it, which is sailing we were talking about the other day. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Next. 16 what is your
3: favorite animal and why oh that has to be my little working cocker dog who is gorgeous and very okay. much my favorite animal
0: okay so and uh, clearly no explanation needed uh, next one number 1 please what have you been uh, reading during lockdown uh, work or pleasure i haven't managed much
3: reading for pleasure for the whole of this year, really. Um, The world of a medical director uh, means I tend to be reading government guidance documents, mostly. I'm an inveterate reader of the newspaper, so I'm a guardian and observer reader, and I do manage to read those every day as part of my chill time late in the evening. That's my switch off time.
0: And would you like to choose the last one? Um, Number 12, please. Okay, here's some pre-COVID nostalgia. Um, What was your most memorable trip to the cinema? Probably going to see Greece on repeat
3: weekend after weekend after weekend. and I went to dance classes to learn how to do all the dances too on the bus with two friends on Wednesday nights.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. Well, thanks, Eric. A great point to to end your part um, in the crash test. Thank you very much. Amaka, let's come to you last but by no means least. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be where you are today.
2: Okay, I am the first of six children. I was born in Scotland. My father was doing orthopedic training, medical training, in Edinburgh. So we, the first three of us, were born there. And I went back to Nigeria when I was about twelve. He went to Nigeria to open up an orthopedic department. So I was in England until twelve or so. um, Secondary school, latter half of secondary school, and university in Nigeria, Um, and then I came back to England purposefully to do radiology because somebody had come visiting when I was in my final year with this packet of CTs and you can imagine that they were not the sort of CTs we look at now but I was in awe of them I just thought wow wonderful images and so I was going to do radiology and I came and I did radiology so I'm very happy um, with having done that I did my radiology training in Sheffield but then I really couldn't decide whether to do musculoskeletal or pediatrics and this um, fellowship came up at Great Ormond Street. I was the second fellow. Um, and it seemed I could do both. I could go ahead and do musculoskeletal, pediatric musculoskeletal under Christine Hall. But when I got there, they said, You're interested in child abuse, you're interested in as nobody is. And Christine was apparently going to retire in about three years' time. So they gave me a PhD position. They said, Why don't you do a PhD? And by the time you've done your PhD, Christine will have retired. So I thought all right now, why don't I do a PhD? By the time I've done my PhD, Christine will have retired. Um, I did my PhD, really enjoyed it, but Christine didn't retire for lots of years. But What happened was that I realized that I enjoyed research and so after I'd been there for about, I think I was at Great Ormond Street for about nine years, years—the I, I had a choice to make whether to get a research position um, and be predominantly research or to stay in clinical and in the end I went for research and I applied to the Hefsey senior lecturer fellowship thing that they, were, they, they had, and I came and did that here in Sheffield. And I was promoted to professor only this year, January, and I'm really proud. There's only one other black female professor in medicine in the UK.
0: So, okay. two of us.
2: I know, who would believe that that's a thing? I never even knew, you never think about these things. Someone told me too. For our listeners, they're shaking heads and
0: guffaws of how that's possible.
2: That is absolutely shocking, isn't it? That's terrible. it's, It's unbelievable, yeah. And then I think in all subjects, everywhere, anywhere, there are fewer than 50, something like 44 or something. 45, don't quote me, but it's less
1: than 50. Well, congratulations to you. That makes it even more special. Thank you.
0: Absolutely, yeah. Okay, well, let's move on in a less serious tone to your chance to do the crash test, Amaka. Come on then. The numbers <laughs> I wanted have all gone. Nine. <laughs> uh, no, I'll okay. Go nine. Uh, what are you terrible at? Singing, without okay. a shadow of doubt. <laughs> Next one. Fifteen. What career would you have had if you weren't a doctor? Well, we know one thing you wouldn't have been. But what would you have been if you weren't a doctor?
2: Oh, do you know, I don't know. I think I, I kind of would have liked um, interior
0: design, I, I, think, yeah, yeah. I think. yeah. Next one. Eight. You had a time machine. What point in history would you travel back to? Oh, I think I would like to be
2: a um, in Henry VIII's student. You know, I would have just like the costumes and things, I think. Yeah, that's fine. Anyway,
0: influenced by things like Wolf Hall. <laughs> Possibly. Okay, next one uh five what is your most annoying
2: habit i rock it gets on people's nerves forwards and backwards all the time
0: can't keep still makes you dizzy (laughs) and uh, your last one two clues assuming you don't already have one uh, what olympic gold medal would you most like to win i don't i just want one i don't care what i get it for (laughs) it's olympic gold who cares <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, look, Amaka, thank you very much for doing the crash test. But um, that does leave one question left. So yeah, odd number of guests leaves one left over. So number four is for me. What is your secret talent? Oh, no. When I was young, I could, but the alphabet. Okay, right, quickly. Next. Okay, let's move on to the more serious business. Thank you all of you for taking part in the crash test there. Amaka, we're going to s- stay with you and I wanted to ask you about what you felt were the day-to-day challenges for you in getting research done. That's definitely going to be, um,
2: for, for me personally, two things. Time management, time. There's so much pressure on my time, meetings, reviewing papers. Somebody's got me doing a two hour blog this afternoon, for example. So really difficult to get my research done, I think is the time management. The other thing is um, for me as a pediatric radiologist, patient consent is such a problem and designing the protocols and writing the studies that that allow you to sort of um, do
0: these things on children. is a lot harder to do research on children than in adults. That's a very important point, I mean it's integral to the research process. Have you come up with any ideas or any uh, ways of streamlining that or making it more effective for your participants and for you, yourself as in your research team yes
2: yeah, so so I probably used the incorrect term when I said consent. I should have said assent, and in particular it's for the research around um, suspected abuse, which you may not know is one of my um main areas so you have on the one hand this parent to whom you're saying we think you may have abused your child and on the other hand you say can you sign on this form so we can do some research please um it, it's actually very difficult to, to recruit and and yet they do deserve the research done because the answers are so critical to what happens to them whether they stay with that family or or, or whether they're, they're taken away from the family depending on the answers you make so uh, i i have investigated all these ways of avoiding getting parental consent because these children can't even assent; they're too young they're usually infants as you know um, and at the moment currently there seems to be no way around it the parents must give their consent um, and so we, we very small percentages can we actually recruit for prospective studies if you end up trying to do retrospective analysis of existing radiographs well, we can do that sort of thing like a service evaluation or an audit, but it often isn't
0: quite what you wanted to do. That does seem like uh, quite a remarkable challenge. Erica, you have got some very different challenges, I'm sure. Could you tell us, because you said you've really enjoyed continuing being involved in research, what are the uh, barriers for you getting it done day, on a day-to-day basis?
3: So I guess for all of us, it's time, isn't it? And, and we all have different constraints around our time. Some of my challenges have also been that um a lot of my endeavor around research has been in a rather more strategic way rather than my own personal research in recent years so um the Norfolk Norwich became a teaching hospital only 15 years ago and our research capability and our research mechanisms and infrastructure have really not yet grown into a full adult teaching hospital. so a lot of what I've been working on in the last couple of years been getting all that infrastructure in place and building a team making sure that we have a really good relationship not only with the university of east anglia locally but also with fiona's teams at cambridge and getting us on on a really firm footing so that i can leave a legacy for others to have an easier time doing research and some of that's been What I think a lot of people would say is quite boring, sorting out funding for research PAs so that existing consultants can bid for a couple of PAs that are funded by us and the university and also the hospital charity. So we've now got a little pot of gold that we can use to get people who are new consultants continuing what they did when they were training. Because quite often I think that's really tricky for people. So you, you arrive in a consultant job that's pretty full clinically and you lose your interests from when you were training and the research that you've done as a junior doctor. And I would really like to leave that as a legacy for us to have that enabled, for people to be able to continue. Um, and then of course, once it's like a snowball, isn't it? It gathers and gets bigger. So once people are doing more, other people join and other people want to play. And also then we manage to get more funding. So we've not been successful as a university hospital and getting lots of grant awards for instance so we're pump priming things locally to make that happen and to make it a better place for research active teams to grow and i and i think um, whilst i'm doing less of my own research i continue to do a little but much less of mine i think that's as one gets older and more senior being able to leverage that has been a real privilege and a pleasure
0: yeah, so we'll come on to, to, to how we can shape the environment a, a little bit later. But I think part of the challenge is, for example, people coming into a consultant role in the NHS, knowing that that time will be available to them and knowing that that research work will be appreciated as part of the organisational effort for for something like a hospital trust. Yeah, I think that's fundamental.
3: Um, and I see lots of people's really brilliant research being switched off because they're not in an environment that enables them to continue and i think it's particularly true at the time when young consultants need to be continuing research they're often really struggling juggling many calls on their time young families busy clinical careers and making that work is is hard for people so creating an environment that makes that as easy as possible with the ability to switch on and switch off some research time is
0: i think really important. Amaka you had something you wanted to mention there?
2: Yeah i was just following up on what Erica was saying that it's so true um, as one of the leaders for research um, within my department we did a survey um, across the whole unit really so diagnostics as a whole and something that kept coming up as to why people weren't doing very much research it wasn't that they didn't want to it was just they didn't have the time there was so much demand on clinical, and for a few of them, the administrative aspects of the work that they just, even though they wanted to do some research, they didn't have the time. And even though some of them actually had so-called protected PAs for research—one PA, point five PA, two PAs max—they they, the, the clinical work would just overspill into
0: that um, re- um, research time. It's, it's difficult. Fiona, you're head of one of the. Must be one of the largest academic radiology departments in the country. Um, what's your take on the, the the challenges of the day-to-day getting the research done for you? I think it's absolutely true that you know there's this time issue, the balance between the
1: clinical pressures with the with the research endeavour, and I think that's something that people have to be quite honest about and upfront about and Recognize that if you've been given and paid to do research and perhaps getting money from a charitable body, you know, for where, where the public have raised funds. Um, then I think we have an obligation, a duty to deliver the research as well. It is equally important as, as the clinical service, but it's very hard if there's a patient in front of you to, to say, no, no, I've got to go and do this. This research meeting now. I mean, I think the biggest challenges, um, or one of the biggest challenges we've got at the moment, are the regulatory hurdles. I think these are now huge and they're very complex and they can result in enormous delays in getting research started. And I think that while the, while the HRA, you know, the, the this, this single ethics authority, has worked brilliantly, I think that really has helped smooth things along and, and um, speed up getting ethics approval. The delays now occur at the local R&D point because the local R&D point have a, are expected to check applications before they're even submitted and of course this can be, you can hold something up, this adds another six-week delay before you can even submit an application. And so while the application will then is likely to go through much more easily because the local R&D will have, have you know picked things up and helped you along with it it, it means that there's, there's just just seems to be there, there's more and more barriers in the way uh, to, to getting research done and I find it extraordinarily frustrating and, and again wasteful of public money I, I, I sometimes feel that well there, it's not the research department's fault because they are often overwhelmed with with studies have a of a changing field of, of regulations that they have to keep up with and 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 also the you know the government trying to ensure that there's a there's a good spread of resource across the country and um, so so I think that that the R&;D departments need to find ways to streamline their processes we as as the researchers need to force and um, the um, governance bodies to actually take a more of a light touch approach when it's a not a drug study, when it's not a big kind of interventional study. Often with imaging studies, you know, they're they're not going to majorly affect uh, what's going to happen to an individual. They're relatively low risk, and I think there needs to be some a, a more proportionate
0: approach to the to the regulatory hurdles that we currently are facing. Do you think perceived complexities around those makes it difficult for people that aren't, say, embedded full time or at least most of their time in research to engage with it?
1: I think it's one of the most off-putting aspects of getting started in research, because the paperwork that's involved is just huge at the moment. And unless you can get plugged into a, an infrastructure where there are people there to really help you and almost help you write your ethics application and write your different proposals in a fo- in a Format that will
0: be acceptable, um, I, I think it's almost impossible to get started. And another uh, thought that came to me whilst you were, you, you were talking about the responsibility of spending, um, maybe Erica as well and Amak um, can come in on, on this, is the, the fact that as a university, that is the, one of the singular Well, purpo- one of the main purposes is to engage in research. But people might regard a, a hospital trust as it not being there primary objective. So I wonder how that weighs, Erica. So I, I think this is really important, Tom, that um,
3: the evidence is that research active hospitals deliver better care. And I think there's there's complicated reasons for that. It isn't just that they tend to recruit the brightest and the best teams because people want to work in places with intellectual challenge and prestige. It's that if you have a really research active environment People are curious, people are intellectually curious, and they're intellectually more challenging of each other as well. And that results in better healthcare. And the, the evidence is absolutely robust. Whichever metrics you pick, whichever quality metrics, whether it's your hospitalized, hospital standardized mortality ratios, whether it's outcomes for specific disease processes or operations, they're all better in research, active and enabled organizations. So for individuals like myself as a medical director, it's absolutely fundamental that that's at the heart of lots of decision making and that we promote that. And for all of us who are research active and research interested, that we enable others to be so as well. And we create that environment because it's the right thing to do for patients. And it's. Also, the evidence is that actually healthcare becomes cheaper the more research you're doing. So, research-enabled environments are also a bit cheaper to run. So, it ticks the box on every level for the taxpayer, for value for money, um, and for keeping people interested as well. And certainly, research-active clinicians, not just doctors, remain much more interested in the world they're working in. Um, And they, they give a lot back
0: to us as their employers as well. Okay, Erica, so let's stay with you and let's move on to our our next question. Can I ask what aspects of your work do you think would be most surprising to someone about the future of their own career at their early stages? So I think there's often this perception that you can't have it all and you can't do everything.
3: Um and certainly, you need to be good at managing your time. but the reality is you can actually have a, a career and have a domestic world and do some research it's It's a question of balancing those priorities. you know, I mentioned earlier that I picked the number six because I have six children, which is partly because I did a buy one get three free with a second husband <laughs> who um brought three extra small people into my world 15 years ago. But actually, that was probably one of the things that helped me maintain my interest in research and research endeavor personally, because it gave also a little bit of me time. It was something that I did for my own intellectual stimulation and my own curiosity. And also the relationships that I've built through my research are completely different from the relationships I have in other professional arenas um and we talk about different things um i did a lot of radiographic research with the university of salford um promoting radiographers who were research interested into different avenues of interest and historically quite a lot of allied health professionals haven't had research interest um and that was such a pleasure watching really bright newly qualified radiographers take an interest in something completely different and and i think I have gained so much from those other relationships in ways that I would have never done if I hadn't maintained some research in my
0: life. Amaka, can I come on to you and ask you the same question about what you think is someone who was at the start of their career? What would they would think would be surprising about the the work that you do?
2: I think they'd be surprised by the variety of collaborations and people that I interact with clinically, but predominantly through my research and talks. So, paediatricians. Endocrinologists, engineers, drug companies, industry. Um, I get I am I'm, I'm invited by all of these people as well as by radiologists, adult radiologists, sometimes predominantly pediatric radiologists. Um, and so, yes, we radiologists are involved in in drug trials. I, I do in, in silico medicine, simulating, trying to simulate fractures by using computers. Um, so I think it's really varied. And I've been able to travel the world to um, literally giving talks and being wined and dined by these very rich drug companies. Um, so it's it's been great. And as Erica says, I don't have six; I have two, but they they, they I feel as if I have six. Um, so it's it's
0: great. It's a nice balance. I've loved it um, with the collaborations. Um, working with people do you find that a certain element of gregariousness and sociability and you know getting involved with people and enjoying that comes with the role yeah I have lots of
2: friends all over the place um lots of good friends and we we, it's 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 it's, it's a good laugh it's serious so daytime you have your meeting you do your presentations you discuss the stuff research and projects and grants and what the next step is going to be and then in the evenings we come back down in our jeans we let our hair down and we have a good time.
0: Yeah, well, I'm in my jeans right now. <laughs> um, and uh, Fiona, can I ask you what uh, maybe you yourself found surprising about what you do today and what others might also
1: So I know I I completely agree uh, with what with what Amaka and, and Erica have said. I think that um the it's the meeting really interesting people from different walks of life and um, has been just fascinating. And because you're doing research in a particular area, and um, it just opens up different doors than when you were just doing being a, a, a straight radiologist. You know, you become an expert in in a kind of very small area, and then of course other people want that expertise. They they want to pick your brains about something. So you so you meet this whole range of people, and it's it it. I think it turns out it, it it's the people I find very interesting and and a bit like Mac, I'm, I'm kind of traveling all over and involved in kind of different european organizations as well as in north america now and and it's it's meeting with them and and exchanging ideas and and just sort of inching forward to 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 better practice to better ways of doing things better delivery of meetings better teaching tools you know better research or or collaborating internationally it, it's just i find it just real privilege. It's, it's, As Avika said, it's great fun Um, and and part of your job has to be fun. A lot of it's very hard work and a lot of it's quite repetitive but you know as long as you have some fun
0: there I think it makes us keep coming back to do a good job. Do you still have the opportunity to get involved in the day-to-day processes of of imaging research such as looking at scans, application of analysis techniques, um, developing sequences? Oh absolutely. Um, and in some ways, I think if you're leading projects, it's really
1: important that you're involved in in the in, in the weeds of a project, so you actually make sure that a protocol' has been set up correctly, that the MRI images. So we're doing an abbreviated MRI study at the moment, you want to make sure that the images are as good quality as they possibly can be and that involves, I mean that's my expertise, I'm a radiologist, I'm good at looking at images and so I very much get involved in the reporting of the different scans, making sure the quality is as good as it can be, looking for you know different ways of of processing the images, looking at you know we're, we're looking at kind of AI tools, you know, what does that actually look like in relation to the images? So I'm still very much involved in the in in because that's where my skill set is. I'm you know I am
0: a person who looks at images and interprets images. But as we sort of touched on, there is the element of being inspirational in roles of leadership, and clearly you all have those responsibilities as well. But how Fiona, if I can stick with you, how have your experiences shaped you? in terms of becoming a leader throughout your career?
1: I I think that I've been influenced, oh I've been influenced by people on the clinical side and on the research side. I've seen some amazing giants. I mean I, I learned my research by kind of observation. I didn't do a PhD or an MD or anything. I literally, you know was on the ground running research project with people who were standing right standing over me watching over me making sure that i was doing it correctly and 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 you know having good compliance and governance and you know i remember very early we did the of the scottish back trial and i remember a brilliant guy adrian grant who ran, who ran the health services research unit in aberdeen and i'm going but but why but why do we why do we have to count the people who you know who were randomized that arm but didn't have the tech why do we have to count those people because that's the way you analyze research you know and so he would keep bringing me back to the correct and right and proper way of of doing things and so I learned you know patience I I had you know integrity reinforced I, I learned about good research practice and I learned about how how important it was to keep teams on board that you that you had to have a team of people doing things you couldn't possibly have all the skills yourself because you wanted to be you know, i wanted to be surrounded by experts i didn't have all those skills i was wasn't going to be an expert in anything and so i learned how important it was to to work with people and and to try and get the best from from other people and and bring the young ones on that, that was one of the things that i felt a bit like erica was saying you know one of the you know the nicest moments that you have is when somebody comes back to me and said i just had the best trip to japan professor gilbert thank you so much for setting that up and of course all i had done was email my mate in tokyo who i really liked and said any chance you could take a medical student for an elective and you know and, and they, they think that you'd move the world for them and of course it completely impacted on their world and it was it was just such a small thing that i had done to open a door for somebody and, and it's 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 hugely rewarding and I think we as leaders have to remember our role is to bring the young ones on. It's no longer our time it's our 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 job now is to develop you know the
0: up and coming radiologists. Okay so I really want to take the opportunity to since we're talking about leadership to to, to ask you Fiona of any situations where you have been really heavily challenged in a leadership role and you've been faced, for example, with a crisis and what kind of thoughts go go through your mind and how you look for a solution in such situations?
1: So I I think a couple of instances where it's people, people are usually, you know, money issues you can usually solve, but it's when there are people involved and for some reason there's maybe a research integrity question an individual is is just not behaving well for whatever reason and how you then deal with that in a compassionate way and i think that has been one of my most challenging episodes um, in in my career in that because often the individual has has little insight as to what's going on and otherwise they wouldn't be behaving in that way or they're actually unwell and, or, or there's other things going on in the background and sometimes it that that does take time and it often involves well I involved the HR team who were terrific because you need to make sure that you're doing the best for that individual because 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 they're the ones who are imploding for whatever reason and that becomes really really hard you know particularly when it's impacting on junior staff or the rest of the department or you know, and, and and so you can't ignore it because if you ignore it, the whole thing's just getting worse and worse. I'm, I'm sure Erica's got had a number of examples where she's had to deal with difficult things, but it happens in in research as well. Yeah, Erica,
0: please do comment.
3: No, I think that's absolutely right. It happens in all walks of life, doesn't it? And um, certainly, some of the trickier HR issues I've dealt with uh, in, as medical director have involved research issues as well. And I. I think a really deep understanding as leaders in um, our worlds of research governance becomes very important and also an understanding of ethical permissions, consent issues, um, GDPR and data sharing, all of those things become far more important if you're also in a world where you're trying to encourage lots of other people to join this endeavor. Um, And I, I, like Fiona, see my role now being to trigger interest in others and bring the young who are many decades junior to me in in a world where things are different now. Things are more difficult for many. Um, Junior doctor contracts are quite tricky. I think a lot of people feel they're very much on a treadmill Um, and research can give them a real light in their working week. Um, so I think it is the endeavor is for us to to work to do that and to show people. I th- I think tricky experiences generally with research are in early days when you're getting things rejected and you haven't quite pitched them right and you send things off to senior colleagues who red pen terribly. And and there are times when you have to maintain that sense of commitment and enthusiasm, despite rejection and despite correction. Um, And like Fiona, you know, I I have a DSC, which is an honorary doctorate. I don't have a PhD. I pondered whether to do that. um, But by then I had very small people in my world as well. And it was just the wrong time for me to do a PhD. And And I learned by sitting with people and very much being told what to do and given instructions on how to write things up and how to data collect and et cetera. So um, very much hands-on learning.
0: Amaka, can I come to you then and ask you about the experiences that you've had in leadership becoming a chair of paediatric musculoskeletal imaging? And can we reflect on both the positive and negative experiences that you've had around becoming someone in that leadership role? Yeah, I mean, I would say that I had a good time doing my PhD. Um,
2: Christine was um, my supervisor, Professor Christine Hall, and I had a medical physicist, um, Professor Andrew Todd Pokropek from UCL. Um, my, my project was around imaging and optimizing imaging. So that was good. But the thing is that I went from being a clinical researcher or, or a research you know to to being a researcher who was clinical if you see the difference, I moved into the university sphere and i wasn't really prepared i didn't quite realize the way it worked so whereas i you know i I came to Sheffield and there was no other academic radiologist um in pediatrics the, there was Paul Griffiths, but he was mostly um m r i and it was a different department i was in the p i was essentially on my own. So there was none of this being second or third author on someone else's paper, or being a co-applicant on someone else's grant and learning. And actually I did a PhD, but I didn't really do any of these big NIHR or uh, um, arthritis UK versus arthritis they call themselves now, any of these big grants. So the negative would be that I had to do it all on my own. And once I came to Sheffield, the positive would be that I had to do it all on my own. Once I came to Sheffield, you learn a lot and actually i quite i'm i'm yes. independent i'm independent and i um I, I don't particularly like being told what to do because I feel I want to do it the way I do, and sometimes it doesn't work out and it's harder so it's it's been a a steep learning curve it's been hard work but then it's also been really satisfying to see success at the end
0: and are you supervising at the moment
2: yes I have four PhD students, another one going to start, then of course, there are always the SSC medical students who come student selected component um, who do their research. So there's never a time. um, In fact, I think I have something like five or six PhD students at the moment, including those in radiology. But I don't have the head of department responsibilities that Fiona has. Um, I I I have the students and I actually don't see it as leading. Because I don't necessarily say, you 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 feel this sort of imposter syndrome thing. I think I perceive myself to be nurturing. It's much more a maternal type thing. And the biggest compliment I received was actually an insult. I think he meant it. An insult was one of my medical students was doing a BMED site to clear out to do it, they call them BSCs now. He was doing an intercalated BMED sign. We were at um pediatric radiology conference in Budapest, and I, and I was saying this and I was saying that and it was just cackling around to him, you know, really he said, Do you know
0: what? You're as bad as my mother, which I thought was amazing. Winning here. I think there is some positive sheen on that. I I, yeah. I think so. Very, Coming so, on to the super yeah. supervisory roles, do you find, Amaka, that there's some weight of responsibility on the potential future success of all these students that you're supervising?
2: Absolutely 100 percent I take it really seriously. It's um I'm probably over-involved you know, um, but I, I do, I, I, I learned, when I started my PhD someone said to me you don't have a bad PhD student, you have bad supervisors and and now that I, I'm, I'm the supervisor I, I do, I take it really seriously. Um, I, I, I love them to do well and I tell them when they come you're here to do well. <laughs> Whether you want to or not, you're here to do well, yeah, no pressure. you're, you're yeah. going to present, there's no pressure, you're going to get posters, you're going to win prizes, you're going to write papers, minimum of two papers, you know, I give, I tell them at the very beginning and every single one of them has done that. And um, not everyone <laughs>
0: has won a prize, but but everyone has written papers. It feels like if you have the opportunity to imbue that culture and create that environment that success is going to breed success and Fiona I can see you nodding about the, resp- the responsibility aspects of the role for students you have talked about how great it is to see them go off into the future did you have anything to add there?
1: No I, I think that what, what Mac has been saying is absolutely true I think when you take on students whether it's just for you know the the, the six weeks of an SSC or, or an elective student or or particularly with, with the PhD students, you have an obligation, it's a contract you've got with them and you want them to do well, you want them to succeed and I end up having weekly meetings with them which is far more than kind of people advise but I want to keep them on the right track and I want to make sure that they're not wasting their time and you also have to make sure they're not kind of going down rabbit holes or, or being overloaded in some way because some of them are so enthusiastic. That, you know every week there's a new idea in there you know and, and actually they're almost the hardest ones to manage to try and keep them you know pull them back to you know your phd's this. do that at the end if you've got time but let's try and keep you on track
0: that's great to see such enthusiasm that's fantastic so uh, Michael, we talked about supervising students and i called this episode looking forward, not back, because I think this is, we're agreeing is about the future of academic radiologists and how we can make the most of that. But what I thought would be an interesting thing to ask you is what have you seen in your colleagues, contemporaries, or your students, your seniors, that seems to be a sort of marker for success. The way they go about things, or an attitude, or productivity. What kind of things have you seen that you've seen take people places? I
2: think the very first thing that I would say is reliability. The ones who come to me and say this is what we're going to do, or I say we agree something, and they do it. And if they haven't done it, there's a really good reason why they haven't. And it just shows, um, I don't know what word to use, the ability to organise. And you need that. Everything about research is deadlines. It's, there's a deadline for writing that grant. There's, there's a limit to the words that you can put in. There's um, a deadline to reviewing it and sending it back if it goes through round one. You know? Um, you've know, you got to do your grant application, you've got to get the costings right. Um, and then you have to do your Gantt chart. Then you have to go through the setting up of the project. Once you've got it done, you've got to be there to recruit. And if you are not going to be reliable in a small thing before it gets to that time, it's so difficult. You're, You're not going to do well. I think clarity of vision, if they can have that fairly early on, that's very helpful. Enthusiasm is great, but as Fiona said, too much enthusiasm can just be, you, you need, you, you have to have a certain tunnel vision for research, you can't keep deviating, you just can't.
0: That, that that poses very some very interesting thoughts, for example someone in my position where I am given time to research but obviously I, I don't have a full-time career doing that and you know the way that you can be torn between t- two masters um, uh it's uh, it can be very difficult and i think that single-mindedness to both can help somewhat provided you don't start splitting your personality down the middle <laughs> but erica can i come to you and ask about the kind of characteristics that you could cite in individuals that seems to say well they've got what it takes
3: i think you need a, a bit of tenacity i think i was probably really annoyingly enthusiastic and a bit of an <laughs> irritant to those who were senior to me when i was a Registrar, because um, I was always looking for the next thing and what I could do next, and so I, I do think enthusiasm, tenacity is really important though, um, and being able to complete something. You have to be a completer finisher in this game, but it's also having enough insight and enough sense to ask for advice when something may not be completable. So abandoning ship with research that isn't going anywhere can be the right thing to do. Um, And I think also admitting when you don't know. So I've probably phoned a friend more often in a research world than I have in other worlds. Um, And collaboration is everything in life, isn't it? Nothing in medicine is a solo hobby.
0: I completely agree. So I've got a really interesting thought on that line that you have to walk between be able to admit that you don't know what's going on, but yet also being driven and having confidence in that something's going to work in research. And you know, how, how can you balance that effectively, Erica? So I, I don't think that's just in research, actually, if I'm honest. I think that's, that's
3: um, in senior medical life, full stop. I think for all doctors, actually having the ability to say when you don't know is a prerequisite for the job. Um, and downright dangerous if people don't have enough of that to be honest. But I do think in research, this this sensitive tightrope of being super enthusiastic and confident in what you're doing and committed, and I, I absolutely agree with Amica that you really do need time management skills and the ability to be concise and eloquent, particularly in the written word, are essential but you can collaborate with other people who bring some of that to the party too and i do think you can learn some of those skills so i don't think that's an innate requirement i think you can learn that from other people
0: it seems that a lot of people make progress very quickly through any number of kind of factors, such as luck with their project, but having those mindsets that take them and keep them moving forwards. We've talked about being gregarious as well, being able to make contacts. Fiona, what have you seen in your career that has led you to think that someone, you know, ha- has what it takes, has the has the ability to be successful in in research?
1: I think I think first of all, the, the, somebody who's come to seek me out, so they've been determined enough to to find you know where my office is and come and say or make an appointment so they've already made that first step and um, they've shown some kind of track record where as Erica says that they're able to complete something whether it's an audit project or or anything just that they've seen something from start to finish you want to know that they won't just kind of leave you hanging because there's, there's nothing worse than making a big effort with somebody and setting something up and then they just kind of Disappear because they're just too busy, or they just disappear, and you think, what happens? You know, it's it's going to be very demoralizing when that happens. And so, so we're we're trying to pick people who will see it through, but who also recognise that there's actually quite a lot of work involved. So they have to go into a project, or, or particularly if they're undertaking a PhD, I'm very wary before PhD students start that they really understand the commitment that they're making. You know, people come and say, "Oh, I'd like to come and do a part-time PhD with you for a couple of years." And you're going, "Well, actually, not a PhD is three years of full-time work. What makes you think that you could do it in two years part-time? You know, what? You know, you know are you are you the next Einstein that we haven't known about?" And it's kind of it, it's it's so people. So I think the yeah the qualities are are um, somebody who's who's com- committed. Who's who's able? I mean, they have to be intellectually able. But then, most people coming to medicine now are intellectually able. You know, we've we've got the most outstanding workforce. You know, you could hope for at the moment. And I think, I think research in terms of the workforce that we've got, because the research because the workforce are so bright. You know they're chosen on on their intellectual abilities largely as well as their abilities to play musical instruments and sports and win gold medals etc good questions by the way and um, because we've got that roundedness and intellectual ability then they need research in medicine to keep them interested going forward because what are the challenges once you've been a con- you know once you get to being a consultant you're there you know within what 10 years of of, of graduating and you've still got another nearly 30 years to work. So people need that stimulation. They need to be trying out new things. They need to be trying new, you know, better ways of managing the disease. They need to be constantly looking around them to see how we can be doing things better. And of course, some of that is called research. Other times we we call it different things and Erica's better versed, you know, to talk about that and whether people go down a management route because they want to be intellectually stimulated. That's just as important, how we deliver healthcare in the UK. It's critically important that we move to a much more value-based approach um, in healthcare. And of course, we're talking specifically about radiology. You know, radiology is fantastic because we have all these new technologies coming through and it's amazing development in the imaging. So that keeps us occupied and intellectually um, satisfied. also, there's another layer, and, and we would strongly encourage all radiologists to come and you know, dip their toe in the water of research. It's never too late to start doing research projects. There's amazing ways that people can, can step into it, even, even as a very old dog.
0: So I'd like to extend that invitation. The whole point of the Crash podcast is to get people engaged. And I have already been contacted by uh, students and junior doctors from uh, across the country. And I would like to ask our listeners to take that step and take a project they've been involved with another step further. Go and speak to someone, get in contact with us at the Crash podcast. Uh, Not so easy catching people's attention in the corridor these days. But yeah, just, just make that effort and see what you can make of it next.
2: I wanted to say that if anybody is listening who doesn't doesn't recognize those traits in themselves, you haven't to have all those traits, so don't be put off by this thing, you haven't to be this perfect ideal person and actually a lot of those things can be nurtured in you if your supervisor is interested and keen and good, so um, please do not lose interest, don't um, be disheartened by what we're saying we're talking about the ideal and I can tell you that a lot of those characteristics wouldn't have been recognized in myself 15-20 years ago,
0: so you, you learn um, <laughs> Yeah, that, that, that makes a fantastic point, yeah I completely agree, no, no one is flawless and I certainly feel I've got huge amounts to continue to learn. Last week, um, as we were recording, we had the Royal College of Radiologists Clinical Radiology Research Day, in which we had the inaugural crash debate, in which we put forward some mini motions which were argued by our previous guests, and they were proposing it, opposing it, and the audience got to vote. Now, one of the uh, motions that we put forward was that every radiology department should have a research radiologist appointment. and that motion was actually carried by 83% of people in the audience agreeing that that should be something that we're sure we should do so that was some an idea for the future perhaps in what we could do to have the biggest impact possible on radiology research now erica can i come to you and ask these kinds of initiatives. And we've talked about making research accessible to NHS consultants. Can you um, share with us any other ways that you think we could have uh, an impact on radiology research, if we could change it tomorrow?
3: So I I think there's a lot about um, promoting what radiologists bring to the party, to other non-radiologists. Quite a lot of the research that we're all involved in in our individual departments is triggered by a clinical question or a clinical need. And it's collaborative research with clinicians. And only through those multidisciplinary team working will we actually promote radiological research and genuine good radiological research. And I think quite often radiologists have been a bit shy about selling their wares and saying how good they are and what they can add. Um, And historically, sadly, clinicians who are not radiologists would often publish um, with quite a lot of imaging incorporated into publications without involving radiologists so i would be really supportive of each department having a research lead or a research function but i can't get away from the fact that i'm a medical director and i wouldn't have a clue how i'd fund it so <laughs> yes, and i think that would be the tricky thing so um you can make it a really good thing to do but you then need to work out how to fund it and in my Um, endeavours to get research going um, in a much bigger way in Norfolk, our funding has come through many, many different routes to do that. And some of it's come through our hospital charities, some of it's come from the university. So I absolutely would be really supportive of that. And the many different ways, of course, to fund things, it's a good thing we share those. So the way I've done it might be applicable elsewhere and we can share those experiences. Um, And I, I don't think we do that as well as we could do. And one of the nice things about, your podcasts, Tom, has been hearing about other people's endeavours and what they're doing. Um, And I'm a, a, a shameless thief. If someone else has done it well, why should I reinvent the wheel here? So I go off and steal other people's ideas, their paperwork, standard operating policies, procedures, governance structures. Absolutely. And we should do that for research in radiology. We should share what we've managed to get working.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We have an example, Cambridge Norwich, in terms of additional imaging protocols being added on. That's something that we're wanting to implement that's been shared with us from Fiona's department, and it's going to make huge steps forward. Yeah, so sharing, fantastic. Uh, Fiona, yeah, can I ask you what you think would have a really big impact on research if we could change it tomorrow?
1: Well, I would love to get more people engaged. I think that one of the things that we did um, in the college was start the research passport. And I think this was something where it gave gave the, the, the juniors and young consultants an opportunity to create a portfolio um, of, of research techniques. It, it, was, it was very broad ranging and this then at least gave them some kind of recognition um, that they had done some aspects of research um, and we hoped it would help them going forward. And one of the things that we were really strongly trying to do was uh, persuade the college that some of the At the moment I think it's like five they do an audit project every year and we wanted to replace at least two of those audit projects with a research project but there was huge pushback from the college because they were very concerned that some training programs wouldn't have sufficient research expertise to support all trainees doing research and that's terrible that's a terrible indictment on our specialty when we say that we're not even as a specialty able to teach basic research methodology because actually in most hospitals and training programs there's sufficient you know literature searching being taught by the Department of Medicine or somewhere else teaching trial methodology you know there's there's huge research methodology expertise in most hospitals. And so I think we need to really push the college to encouraging all our trainees to take part in a research project during their training.
0: I think that would make a huge difference. So question number six in the crash debate. Every radiology trainee should publish at least one paper in their training. Was not carried by, yeah, 42% to 58%, so we have work on our hands, definitely. Amaka, can I come to you and ask you what you think could have a big impact on radiology research if we could change it tomorrow? Well, I was nodding vigorously
2: at Fiona suggesting that every research trainee should do research. I still, I agree. I think that motion should have been carried. I disagree with the outcome. I think that, 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 um, that, that Erica touched upon what we're actually doing is not promoting ourselves well enough and it's we, we are involved in huge clinical trials. Ideology is often one of the primary endpoints but the thing is it then gets reported as this wonderful drug cures breast cancer and nobody's you know looking at what the MRI, the new MRI technique you know the new sequences or something that actually made us made it possible to view the cancer or not. So I just think we have to find ways of being inventive and how we you know MRI shows that this drug does that kind of thing Um, um, and I think that people just really it's ironic because we're in the age of technology and radiology is full of technology so it should be attractive to people I just think it's selling ourselves better selling what we actually do and the impact from the perspective of it was because of radiology that we found this out You know, so there's lots of new drugs. Achondroplasia is going to be curable. You know, there's a drug there, the sorotide. it's with NICE. So I'm reporting the skeletal surveys for them. You're doing the MRIs and looking at the foramen magnum stenosis and the spinal stenosis. You're measuring the length of all the bones, you're measuring the bowing, and that's how they know the drug is working. But nobody will report all of that, but we need to find a way of making that reported so that people can think, wow, this is showing that.
0: Yeah, I mean, you look back at the history of medical imaging and all Nobel Prize winners. I wonder if the time of the great developments for imaging has passed. That's a very negative view. But I think, Fiona, can I come to you? And as we're coming towards the end of our time for this episode, can I ask, think on a, on a broader perspective and thinking about the UK? Um, not too politically, I suppose, but what could be done to help make the UK a, a leader in imaging research?
1: So I think we need to start with the medical students and I think we need to really grab the anatomy teaching and ensure that it's done by radiologists. I think we need to really get in amongst the anatomy. It's happening in many places, but we and we need to engage with the medical students much earlier in their clinical training to show really what the contribution of the radiology department is. It's interesting, I mean, a a patient can barely move through our hospital without being imaged within the first 24 hours. We do phenomenal amounts of imaging um, in roots. Clinicians will not make decisions anymore without imaging. And we need to ensure that our students recognise the key pivotal position that radiologists now play. I mean many of the MDTs are taken by the radiologists and so we need to as, as Erica said it, it's, it's a PR exercise we need to undertake to show how important in you know, the central role of, of radiology and then of course as Amaka's is pointing out the importance of radiology research on top of that because in so many areas we're becoming the end point for these clinical trials where you know we can you know the biomarker the imaging endpoint. The imaging biomarker is the readout and and that's what we need to push. We we as a specialty need to ensure the public um, and the research community really understands that.
0: Erica, can I ask you the same question about what kind of steps we can take to make UK leading in imaging research?
3: Right, I agree with um, everything that my colleagues have said. I think it's also about having these conversations everywhere, so it's making sure that we don't miss opportunities And I think the work that the college has done has made a huge difference in recent years and the leadership that the college has shown in promoting radiological research and also working with the Academy of Medical Law Colleges, I think, does make a difference. I actually don't agree that all trainee radiologists should have to have a publication. I think it is horses for courses. When I was a a junior trainee radiologist you did need some publications to get a job um, because it was much more competitive in those days to get jobs now there are lots of jobs so um, and I don't think everybody should have a publication what I do think is everybody should have an understanding of the value of research And it's hard to promote that unless somebody's actually got their hands dirty. And it's a little bit like medical students having to really understand some statistics because otherwise you can't read papers and understand research and evidence and evaluate evidence. And I think the same is for radiologists. Having an understanding of the value of research means you do your job better. And you'll also be a better colleague and a more able to care for patients. And I think that's fundamental.
0: I mean, it's the irony of being the victim of our own success as a specialty whereby the competition is removed. And this is something that I have seen that, for example, you have multi specialties competing for a single ACF post. And just because someone comes from a competitive specialty, they have a much stronger CV and score more points and it becomes an unlevel playing field. Anyway, Amaka, can I come to you about uh, your thoughts on what initiatives we could undertake to try and make uh, the UK leading in imaging research?
2: Ditto what everyone has said, but um, I think that we should use IT to our favour. We should be doing larger multi-centre collaborative studies um, and using the IT technology that we have to analyse big data. I think your question, making the UK... We would have done better if we'd stayed in the EU, but let's not bring Brexit into it. But it's going to be, the point is that we're going to have to be, still come out with top notch studies, keep collaborations going. I think we should concentrate less on the, it's the UK and more just on helping patients and, and coming up with results that will help people. I don't think it's about promoting the UK. Personally. I think that's,
0: yeah, it's a very good point. I hadn't meant my question to be loaded in terms of Brexit negotiations, and we should be very broad-minded, and I do hope that we could continue to collaborate. Okay, so we're coming towards the end of this episode. And I'm certainly not wanting to second guess any uh, career moves from our guests this week, but we've been clearly working our way up the career ladder. And as we come to the end of the show, I do like to stare into the tea leaves and think about the future a little bit more. So it's time to ask where each of you think you will be in 10 years time, Fiona.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I know, I think that's a really interesting question. Um, And I think I won't be working full time I think I'll probably be working part time. I'm sure I'll still be involved in advising and research and involving research. It, it is my first love. I, I I really enjoy being involved in medicine and things. And um, yeah, so I think I'll still be involved in a way. Um, I hope I recognise that I uh, when it's time to stop. I think sometimes <laughs> it's a real danger. People go on for far too long, and I
0: think I think that's important. And so I, I hope I have that insight. Excellent, thanks Fiona. Erica, can I ask you the same question about 10 years time?
3: Well, I'd be a very time expired medical director if I survive another 10 years (laughs) (laughs) as medical director. Um, You know Tom, I honestly don't know. I can't imagine I'll be retired as Fiona says. I think the work bug um, will stay with me for keeps but I also don't think I'll be working full time in 10 years time I think I'll have cut a little out um I better say that because my family would kill me if I didn't say that for 10 years (laughs) hence. okay thank you (laughs) but the research stuff I think will go on I can't imagine losing those collaborations a little like Fiona I can't imagine that bit of my world will stop my dad was writing papers um Two days before he died, <laughs> so wow. I have a bit of a history for that.
0: <laughs> Good stuff. Uh, great, Thank, thanks, Erica. Amaka, can I come to you with that? the ten years time from the tea leaves? What do you see?
2: What I want, what I want to be doing is um, going round schools, um, underprivileged, and I want to be sim- stimulating those children, particularly the BAME, but also the underprivileged whites. And I want to be saying, you can go to university. Why not?
0: Fantastic. That really is all we have time for in episode five. It's been an enormous pleasure to talk with all our guests this week. Amaka Ofia, Erica Denton and Fiona Gilbert. Thanks, as always, to Charlotte McKeown and the Royal College of Radiologists events team and the college itself for supporting this podcast. And of course, thanks to Sue Mercer for her invaluable sound editing. As usual, show notes will be available at the RCR website. And if you have any questions about what we have discussed today or any other matters related to academic radiology, then you can email them to conf at rcr.ac.uk. That's conf at rcr.ac.uk. We hope that you were able to join us for the RCR Clinical Radiology Research Day on Wednesday, the 18th of November, as we've discussed today, um, when guests from episodes one to four came together for that crash debate. The results were very interesting. There were four more motions that I didn't discuss today. And don't worry if you missed it, as it will be available on the RCR eLearning Hub at some point soon in December. So look out for that coming. Lastly, we have one final episode of the year to bring you, a Christmas special that presents the thoughts from all our female guests on what they think could be done to strengthen opportunities for women in academic radiology. Do not miss this last episode of 2020 that will be released on Wednesday, the 16th of December. And don't forget about Radiant, the Radiology Academic Network for Trainees, at www.radiantuk.com and get your training scheme involved. There is a new national collaborative research project being prepared as we speak, so don't miss out. If you've enjoyed your crash experience tell your friends and colleagues give us a thumbs up and subscribe and finally how could i miss out on the opportunity it's a big hello to jason isaacs i've been your host tom termizai until next time stay safe